This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, this is Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me this week is Laura and Tom from AJ Bell. How are you both? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Laura? Good. A little sluggish. Tom and I went out for lunch. Very nice. No McDonald's. alcohol was involved, just for compliance. Uh, and so I think we're a little little heavy of stomach now. Did you yeah. have, which? What did you have, McDonald's or Burger King? <laughs> <laughs> are they the only two lunch options? Oh, yeah, I was going to say other brands are, are available. Other brands are available, right. but I've never seen you two in any of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> they went to a very nice local local Italian place, ordered exactly the same thing, which Ooh. I think is a sign that you've perhaps been working together for too long. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, Tom is unfortunately leaving the company. <laughs> <laughs> This will be my last podcast, and I am demob happy, so let's go. (laughs) Right, so today we're going to look at how it's possible that billion-pound companies can make zero profit, uh, why funds could start to lock up your money for longer, the insane cost of renting in London, and the regulator's latest warnings on pensions transfers. Well, we managed to avoid talking about Woodford too much on the podcast, but the ongoing... I've got Woodford fatigue. I don't know why we're doing this segment. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you love it. I think you do love it. I know what you mean. It, it, it really has been splashed everywhere. Mm. But I guess the, the important thing to remember is, unfortunately, there are a lot of people with their money tied up. And so it kind of does matter, doesn't mm. it? it mm. People want to know what's going on. Um, and if you've got your money in the suspended fund, you know, when is it going to reopen? And there's, there's endless questions. So we've, we've, got, um, we've got a topic today we want to talk about because um, the fund suspension for, for Woodford Equity Income Fund has, has raised this topic about daily liquidity, uh, meaning the ability to buy and sell uh, out of these funds on a daily basis. But that could soon change, couldn't it, Laura? What's, what's going on? Yeah. So in what looks to be an amazingly well-timed announcement, but they've actually been working on it for quite a long time, the Investment Association, which is like a trade body for all of the investment companies and fund managers, has announced this week that it's got plans for this new thing called a long-term fund. So at the moment, you can buy and sell a fund daily. Um, and so the proposal is that you would end up having these funds where they you can only trade in them maybe weekly or monthly. They've not really fleshed out the details of it. And so it would enable um, fund managers to run illiquid assets, so these assets that take a longer time to sell, um, without having to provide that daily ability to buy and sell a fund to investors. So this is like property and private equity sort of investments, isn't it? So um, not not stocks that trade on a sort of a a recognised stock exchange that you can, you can hopefully get in and out of. Yeah, quickly. although there's nothing to say that fund managers couldn't use it for that purpose so that they have the knowledge that that money is going to be locked up for a certain amount of time. So say you, as a fund manager, launch a fund where you can only um, trade monthly in it, then that fund manager would have a certain amount of certainty with the money he could invest and the amount of time he could invest in, in assets, knowing that only once a month would there be trading in and out of the fund. So I think they're just suggesting it as a vehicle. They're not necessarily saying what it would work well and not well for. But yeah, you're right. Things like property, um, infrastructure that take a long time to sell would be best suited to it. So this is, um, I guess, in, in the savings market, there's plenty of sort of bonds and, or savings bonds where you have a, uh, periods where you can you, you can sort of 
get your money out. Otherwise, it is locked up for a while. So we're kind of used to it, aren't we, in certain parts of the sort of the market. So do you think this would be a big step if we suddenly say that here's an investment, but you can only get in and out of it certain times of a month or, or of a year? Or Yeah, so you're right. It's basically exactly the parallel between an easy access savings account and a three-year fixed rate savings account, for example. Although I don't think they're obviously suggesting that the lockup would be as long as three years. Um, I think it would take a certain amount of kind of re-education I guess for some investors to understand that they could only trade that fund within certain windows and I think as long as people are aware of that when they go into it and they know what the payoff is going to be then that's fine. I think that's the big thing so the the Association of Investment Companies which is a kind of I guess a slightly rival trade body which runs for investment trusts has been slightly more negative on the plans partly because investment trusts already offer this ability to lock up money and not be subjected to that daily trading because of their different structure that we've talked about loads before. But they're saying, what what are investors getting in return for this? So yes, your money's locked up for longer. You can't trade it as often as you want, which means you can't access your money as often as you want. What are you getting in return for that? Are you going to get higher returns? Are you going to get... That? And that's kind of their argument. Yeah, okay. Well, I was having a read of the documentation. It's, it's sort of implying that it perhaps won't be offered to sort of the mainstream retail market um, unless you do sort of a test, um, suitability test sort of stuff like that. I mean, it, it seems to be it's it's offering an open-ended fund, which is historically not really had sort of um, that many liquid assets. Um, and obviously the Woodford Fund is an open-ended one. And that's why the, the problem sort of saying is, is are these assets really suited for this sort of fund structure? Um, and, and really sort of saying, here you go, well, now you can have illiquid stuff in an open-ended fund but this is like our um it's not really aimed at retail people it seems to be aimed at pension funds isn't it i don't it's that was one of their applications of it and their argument is that pension funds can't easily buy into investment trusts which seems so odd why can't them. but why can't they as i see that does seem strange surely they can buy anything on the market can't they so. they can do but i think because some investment trusts aren't that large they would the argument is that pension funds because they've got such large assets to invest would struggle to get in and out of the positions without moving the market themselves so you'd have to have a very large investment trust for them to be able to do that effectively yeah so i guess we, we so the news is out saying this is a proposal but um this is nowhere near going to be happening in the next few months no. is it at all so no exactly and they've had a task task force working on it for a while um it seems very good timing that they've released it now while there's all this talk around <laughs> liquidity and, and Woodford. Um, but also, we've talked a bit before around the Woodford stuff that the regulator's planning to launch some studies and research and stuff. So it's probably all going to be formed a bigger part of that. One to keep an eye on, but not that anything you can do about now. Okay. So, right, let's get back to a Woodford-free zone. So, Dan, you've been looking at the weird situations where companies that are worth a billion pounds or even more make absolutely zero profit. This yeah. sounds like a company Tom would run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, actually. I'm a, I'm a part owner of a beer company, which uh, not only doesn't make profit, but takes a lot of my money as well. Oh, so, I'm really living like the dream. One day, though, one day, we will make oh, some money. Be I the promise next Facebook. You. Yeah. Very good. I always, always wondered what happened to Foster's. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is that libelous? I don't know. It's probably fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's been lots of people sort of uh, have been drawn to these very big companies that have been joining, mm. joining the stock market, but you know, once you sort of take a, a look under the bonnet, um, you sort of realise that, you know, hang on a minute, you know, these are worth billion dollars or, or a billion pounds more, but they don't make any money. You know, it's not so, that's a strange concept to a lot of people. Um, and it's all down to 
uh, it's how much money you are prepared to pay to own these shares. So there seems to be an ever-increasing amount of people who are happy to invest in loss-making companies. And of course, the more people, uh, more buyers than there are for sellers of shares, it pushes up the price, so the valuation increases. So um, we've seen beyond meat, the sort of... the. Um, it's vegan, vegetarian. I'm not sure. I what, think it's vegan. Isn't yeah, it? where where it lies in terms of sort of the technical classification, mm. but the sort of the meat substitute company, um, it's done tremendously well since joining the stock market, um, and it's now worth nearly nine billion dollars. Um, and you know, that doesn't make any money. So mm. it, it's, but it's people going, well, this is quite interesting. You know, they're, they're plugging into something different. So. Is it uh, the kind of promise of future returns? Maybe. Yeah, I think. Or is so. it, or, or is it a lot of it faddy? It is a bit faddy, but I was I was having a sort of rack my brains for some examples. I was thinking this is examples of stocks where people think in the future it's not only they could be bigger, but they're tapping into something that's different. So this is their change. They're either disrupting a market or um, they can see trends in society that you know, something's changing and then this is the way the path is following, and they're 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 potentially well placed to benefit from it. So. Uber is is a good example. So this is revolutionising transport. Or if you're a cynic, it's just an app to book a taxi. Um, but it wants to do much more with the way mobility is a, is a broader subject. Um, Slack is a company that joined the stock market recently, and that's messaging systems. And so the argument have is... Have you ever used Slack? I haven't, but I have a colleague here who, in the IT department, who says it's a just amazing people really? love it at yeah. my old job i they introduced it and being the curmudgeonly person i am mm. i just could not get it did yeah. not understand it so but it's just message it. it's just messaging it's on meant to replace email yeah right so okay get, but it's i think it groups together you can group together certain topics mm. it's a bit like a loads of different whatsapp groups i guess isn't it but mm. that does not sound like something i want in my <laughs> life <laughs> yeah and obviously beyond meat is tapping into this the new mm. food revolution that how our our dietary habits are changing and also it's you know the argument is better for uh, the world if we're not gobbling up yep. all these poor cows and stuff every every minute um but you know so so uber's valued at 73 billion dollars and last year it lost three billion dollars um slack is valued at around 18 billion dollars and made a 138 billion 138 million pre-tax loss in its last financial year and you know again beyond meets the same situations it's valued lows it's losing money but so people don't seem to be put off by that Um, do these companies have a a plan to make money well, interestingly, Uber says it may be a very, very long time before it has even a chance of making a profit. Yeah. Because it's sort of laying down uh, the foundations for what it hopes is going to be a much bigger business even now. Even now, yeah. you, know, you could look at it and say it's huge now, but it, it thinks it could be gigantic in the future. So, um, it's you know, I think that's probably a good way of... Um, sort of telling investors, you know, laying the ground rules now, saying, you know, do not expect a profit mm. anytime soon. And, they, you know, that's that's good guidance, you know, as long as you're buying into this story. But uh, And we're always banging on about how you should invest for the long term and the really long term. And so is there logic in that, that maybe if you think that it's not going to make money for a decent amount of time, but in the future it could be this mega company that makes loads of money, it's well, worth buying in now? Yeah, well, it's, it's the concept is, you know, if I buy now while it's still in its early stages mm. of development, do I get in before this huge sort of um, uptick in its share price? And we saw this with Amazon. For many years, it wasn't 
it was just plowing all of its profits back into the business and and sort of saying we you know we don't need to report a profit every extra bit of money we make we'll just reinvest to do more and i think people are looking back in hindsight thinking you know actually, god at the time everyone was talking about amazon yeah. but no one was interested in investing in it because we all mm. said it was loss making but we missed out on a huge mm. uptick in the share price but you know there's no guarantee it's going to work but there's this really great example of a company that's just joined the UK stock market, which I'm sure many of our listeners will know. It's called Trainline. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Love it. Use it. Yeah. So it's you use it to book your train and bus tickets. Um, that's now worth £2 billion. And so you, you know, Laura's face is i wish we had it's a, a camera because radio. it's not, it's not <laughs> she's looking angry and confused she's looking a bit confused so saying what i think she's what she's trying to say is that's ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> if only she was here to speak for herself yeah, <laughs> yeah two billion seems slightly high for yeah. something where you is basically just an app to book tickets and you can do that with loads of other apps although you do you do get better deals don't you but now you have to pay line. you pay 50 pence or whatever but the deals are, I don't know if that's just something that I find I'm kind of lazily looking between but if I go to Virgin directly or, and then I go to the train line I might pay whatever it is 50p 75p booking fee but then usually the deals are miles miles better on train line okay I've not sort of delved into it that far I, yeah. uh, I mean me, that's the extent that I've delved into yeah. I've booked a train through it I mean I, I, I actually have to do quite a lot of train travelling So, but mm. I, I look at it and think well I can go to any train company and buy without a booking fee but mm. I'm going to train line get the same ticket but I have to pay you know what is it yeah, £1.50 on logic. top mm. so but what, anyway aside from all our anecdotal yeah. evidence <laughs> this, what, what are the actual reasons well, that it's worth £2 billion? well okay so one little thing to remember before, before I sort of expand is this is another company mm. that's loss making. Yeah. Um, but it's been been selling tickets for 20 years. It's like, hang on a minute. Yeah, that's you nice. would have thought, you know, we can be patient mm. for companies and wait for them to grow. But it's 20 years. I mean, that's in the UK, it makes profit, but it's, it's gone into Europe and that's where it's losing money. Mm. Um, and we found this with loads of companies, the same thing. You know, you just look at some like yeah. AO, it's say, another one. It's, you know, it's trying to do too much too too fast and, it, and it's European operations is is where it's really hurting yeah. it. Um, but you know, I don't know, train line. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it, it's trying to find you those extra little deals. You get these alerts when things, you know, cheaper tickets are happening. Mm. But I don't know. Personally, I, I sort of question how um, a quite small revenue company and you know, very low barriers to entry could command a two billion uh, valuation. But you know, people seem to say, well, it's another, it's a market leading platform in its sector. Therefore, you know, that's loads of people are attracted to it because of that situation. So you think of right move in the property market. Mm. Um, you know, that's the market leaning one there. It's, it, it, it has been over the long term very good for investors. Um, and so I was talking to a fund manager about Trainline the day and he, he'd taken part in the IPO. He said, yeah, 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 you know, um, there was massive demand that they got all their orders in two hours um, wow. and everyone was, was really buzzing about how it's another... Um, you know, the latest platform mm. to invest in. So uh, I might be wrong, you know, being a cynic, but um, I think it's worth yeah, worth diving into the investment case. You can't make a judgment simply off um, just looking at top line figures. But mm. um, certainly what I've looked at it so far would suggest, um, I don't know, I just can't, it's a ticket reseller. It's, quite, it's not it's that yeah, exciting, app. is it? Yeah. But yeah. It's generally quite, uh, quite tricky for traditional investors who, probably used to focus more on you know profit cash flows all the traditional measures to look at something like train line and mm. make a reasonable decision about whether that's a good thing to invest in or not 
Yeah. I mean, you, you can look at the revenue growth mm. is fast. So you can make it on just on that basis. You can see why people might be attracted to it. But there's a lot more to it. And I think just one final point when you're talking about it's what people are prepared to pay to own these shares. It's not just companies that are listed on the stock market who are seeing these massive valuations and are loss making. Our good friend Monzo, I feel that we mm. haven't talked about that for at least a week. And we used to mention uh, them daily. Definitely <laughs> talked about it last time I was um, on the podcast. So <laughs> they've just done another private round of financing mm. um they're now valued at two billion pounds and its valuation has doubled in the last eight months Christ. which wow. is you know, and that's um sort of i don't know venture capital funds or whoever it is that's investing in it is deemed you know, happy to pay a high price because it thinks it's growing so fast and it's raised those money so it's now trying to crack the u.s market so um, and isn't that part of the logic around some of these, particularly these companies that are coming to IPO, is that they've attracted such high valuations in the private markets and then they then need to float at those valuations so that the private equity or venture capital investors that put money in early doors can get that, can realise that valuation, basically? Yeah, so floating on stock market is an, is an exit. Uh, point for previous investors and yes certainly you know if you were a private equity person and, and they floated it way below what you paid you would not be very happy with you mm, exactly. um, and you don't I don't really can't think of any off the top of my head can't think of examples of situations where that's kind of happened you normally get the broader market of fund managers and pension funds and even the general public are happy to pay a higher price because mm. they're, they're thinking that they're it's their chance to have a slice of the cake isn't it so mm. So, Tom, you always drop in to tell us about the pensions market. And you're always really happy to see me. Yeah, that's why we're always asking back. We love pensions. (laughs) Um, So the regulators got a new warning about the pension transfer market where Mm. people are cashing out their final salary or defined benefits in a way of talking about it. So... What's going on? Yeah, so um, the the background to, to this is we've, over the past three or four years, we've had a kind of perfect storm of things which have pushed people who've got defined benefit pensions, so guaranteed pensions, to consider moving them into defined contribution schemes like SIPs. So we had the pension freedoms, obviously, back in April 2015, um, which made DC pensions much more flexible and also made the death benefits regime at the end more attractive as well, which is one reason why people have considered transferring. The second has has been that we've had um, record low guilt yields, which have pushed up the deficits, the liabilities of these pension schemes, pushed up the deficits and have meant the transfer value that people have been offered have been at record highs as well. So you're getting more cash today in return for your guaranteed DB pension. And then the third thing has been all this corporate uncertainty that we've seen as well on the high streets, so all the stuff around Philip Green and BHS, things around Carillion as well. You remember the, the, the uh, public sector outsource company that um, ended up going bust, loads of pe- uncertainty around people's pensions and whether they're going to get it back. So you've got all these things have gone on at the same time and the result has been loads and loads of people have been transferring out of their defined benefit pension into defined contribution plans. Now, the reason that the FCA has been talking about this is because its position has always been that it's in people's best interest to remain within their defined benefit scheme. So if it sees lots and lots of people transferring out, then it's concerned that they're going to end up in a worse position than they would be if they stayed in. So this is one of the reasons why when the pension freedoms were introduced, 
the government introduced this advice requirement. So everybody who's got a defined benefit pension worth £30,000 or more has got to speak to a regulated financial advisor before they move their money. So that's the background to it. The FCA has now spent a bit of time looking at the market and getting a feel for whether or not it believes advisors are doing their job properly. So it's not made any judgment in the last week on the what the quality of advice is that people are doing. It's simply gone through the numbers and said, this many people have been advised to transfer out of their DB scheme, and this many people haven't been advised. So the numbers, are about 235,000 members since April 2015 have taken defined benefit transfer advice. 69% of those were advised to leave their scheme. That's quite high. I, so, I, anecdotally, I thought it was very low. So there, there, yeah. are, there are some bits and pieces going on um, around this. So first of all, quite a lot of people struggle to get defined benefit advice in, a, in the first place. So that's one of, the, one of the big issues that people come to me about when I speak at shares events and other events is that actually it's quite difficult to get an advisor in the first place. Um, you've also, uh, the, what these figures don't necessarily capture is what, the industry calls a triage service. So when, um, say, if, you, if you've got a DB scheme and you come to me, an advisor, and uh, and you say, I think I might want to leave my scheme, then you might sit down with the advisor for an hour or something like that. This won't be a, a formal session. They won't be, you might not be paying for this work. And the advisor will just decide, based on that conversation, there's no way that a DB transfer is going to be in your interest. They won't go through all the paperwork. And so some of that stuff won't be recorded in these figures. And there's quite often people will go online and they will think about advising quite a lot of these... um, Sorry, they'll think about transferring and quite a lot of these advisors have like guides on their website that will then the outcome of that will mean that the person won't transfer. So this exactly. isn't really capturing it's, it's, the it's whole diffi- market it's, it's di- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, diff- it's difficult to... The numbers don't look great when you first read them, but when you start to think about issues around the triage service, uh, at service that some firms have, issues around the, the nature of the kind of people who would go to uh, an advice, so people who may have read up on what they're doing may know that they're a more likely candidate to be recommended a transfer, then it's not necessarily as bad as the FCA says so what it's going well as the FCA has has hinted it's all been kind of fire and brimstone around this it's pretty clear what the FCA is trying to do is push up standards among uh, defined benefit pension transfer advisors and make sure that there isn't any bad bad practice so from this they're going to do a deep dive looking into all these advice firms just to uh, to to weed out I guess any bad practice and consider whether they need to um, consider any other other regulatory clampdowns but clearly stuff like this is going to potentially be a concern to to people who are, are in DB schemes. I know a lot of shares readers, a lot of people listening probably have got a DB plan who want to transfer. They might have struggled to find an advisor initially and now they're going to be reading lots of headlines saying actually there's you, you, might, you might get the impression that there are lots of advisors out there who are just trying to fleece you out of your money and, get, and, and recommend a transfer that's not in your interests in order to line their own pockets. So that's Because part of the issue, isn't it, to tap into that mm. point, is that quite often advisors will, it's, it's called contingent charging, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So advisors will only charge you if you transfer and yeah. they don't make any money per se if you don't transfer. So then yeah. people critics of this system say that it means that there is an incentive for the advisor to transfer otherwise they don't make any money exactly yeah. and there's been loads of criticism about contingent charging from politicians the work and pensions committee and things like that and you can understand the concern because clearly if you don't get paid unless someone transfers then the incentive is for you to give a positive transfer but there's also loads of other um 
regulations in place that mean advisors have got a duty, you know, don't, don't specifically have a duty of care, but they have to treat their customers fairly. They, they have to follow loads of very well-prescribed rules around DB transfers. So the rules should be in place to make sure that advisors don't abuse their position in order to just, you know, force people out of DB schemes and into DC schemes just to give themselves um, uh, a payday. Um, but I think the, uh, on the back of this, hopefully, what, what we will see, um, first of all, is a proper look at the market to make sure, and if there are any firms that are doing the wrong thing, they get weeded out, they have their permissions removed, then they're not doing it anymore. And, um, and then we should get to a point where consumers have more confidence in being able to, when they go and speak to an advisor about transferring out their DB scheme, they should feel that that advisor is giving them the right advice. The concern is going to be, going back to a point I made earlier, there's a real problem about a lack of advisors wanting to do this. So lots and lots and lots of people for various... Then the, like the, the regulator's position is that in most circumstances, this isn't the right thing for people to do. But in some circumstances, it will be the right thing for them to do. So if they get a very, very good offer for their employer, then the, the balance in the calculation might actually be worthwhile them moving. Um, some people have got legitimate concerns about the the employer that's sponsoring the scheme. The, you know, the pension promise is only as good as the strength of the employer that's going to pay the pension. Um, and there will be some people who want to pass money on to people who aren't their spouse, but who are usually covered in DB schemes, so onto their kids and things like that, for whom a DC scheme would be more appropriate. And so the danger is we've already got a market where people are really struggling to find advisors just to speak to them because they're so scared of the regulatory risk. And given that the regulator has been so strong on this, the danger is that that's going to get even worse. And I, mean, I, I, I can't exaggerate the amount of times that I go to events. This is probably the thing I get asked about the most is how do I find somebody who will just speak to me about my DB scheme sometimes people ring six seven eight different advisors and not they won't, they won't even they won't even answer the phone does it does a, a company if they're offering you to you know to to, to transfer out and say that mm. we'll give you this offer aren't they obliged to give some sort of um, guidance no. at all or get so you know get a third party to talk you through it or? so no no a lot of companies will do that so a yeah. lot of companies will get an IFA um, involved as part of the process, but there's 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 no there's no obligation, and you yeah. also you can so you have different you have, you'll have some some big mass transfer exercises that will go on, and then obviously you've just got individual people who will just go to their scheme and go actually I want to want to transfer out. So there's two kind of different ways that can happen. And so finally, before we go, I want to flag something interesting I saw on Twitter this week. Oh yeah, the um, Twitter. on the twitters. Is it a smiling cat? <laughs> I'm not a cat person. Is it a snake doing? <laughs> Something it must cool. be a gif. It must be some sort of gif. Yeah. It's not a gif. You're always on gifs. All day. Every time you I go past, walk past your screen, there's some weird <laughs> dog gif on there. <laughs> really odd. This is besmirching my good name. <laughs> um, no, it is more exciting than a gif. It's the cost of renting in London. Ooh. But someone's gone through Housy, which is a... Yeah estate agent, um, has gone through and worked out the cost of rent in London boroughs as a percentage of average earnings in that borough. Okay. So we're going to play Insane London Renting Borough Bingo. (laughs) Dan might have the edge here because I think he's seen this infographic. What do you think the most expensive area of London to rent in in comparison to earnings is? Okay, okay. Tom, you go first. So, I would say somewhere like... Some speed around this, please. Wandsworth. My old borough. No. Dan. 
Hackney. <laughs> yes, Dan has really brushed up. Yeah, so oh, Hackney. I should have known that. Hometown as well. Exactly. So you're in an extortionately expensive area. So Hackney um, rent is on average 83% of people's earnings in the borough. That's so high, isn't it? What? This is why I refuse to buy anyone a drink after work. <laughs> No money. <laughs> <laughs> That's been the case for years with you, Tom. <laughs> in all boroughs you lived in. Okay, so can anyone guess what the cheapest borough is? Bromley. I reckon Bromley. You reckon well. Bromley? Yeah. I mean, must be, surely. Any, everyone knows that. <laughs> you guys have looked ahead. <laughs> it's Bromley. Where, but it's still, so the, one, bearing one. in mind this is the cheapest borough, rent costs on average 46% of the average earnings. So, so that's still almost yeah. basically half your half yeah. your money each month is going to rent crackers, right? Yeah, that's quite interesting because I I wonder, you know I always got the impression that Bromley um, would cost a lot more than that. You know, it's it, all, all you know. It, as I've seen the data. Yeah. I'm quite surprised at some of the, so the places guess, that are particularly high. Yeah, expect. I guess it's because it's slightly out of London, and I guess there might be some. The Bromley Borough is very big, according to this map, so I guess it covers a much broader area. So I guess the flaws with the research are that it's looking at averages for both. So yeah. Hackney, for example, has quite the disparity in mm-hmm. earnings in different areas of the borough. So you take an average of that, but it's not doesn't really reflect the two yeah. true kind of... So be people in social housing and things like that and ex-council places and... Yeah, exactly. And then people that are in some of the more affluent parts of Hackney that are paying lots to live in trendy Dalston yeah, and places yeah, sure. like that. Yeah. So it is only averages. But I do think it's so alarming how expensive it is to live in London. So I'm going to move, I think. I'm going to move somewhere cheaper. Where do you think you're going to go? Well, I've just moved house and said I'd never move house again. But, you know... <laughs> I'm ready. Well, you've still got all the boxes, haven't you? So, yeah, most right. of the stuff's still packed, so I'm yeah. ready to go. Where do you think you'd stay in this country or go to somewhere else? I'm going to go to the... How far away do you want her to go? Outer Hebrides, I think. Oh, you would not survive in the Outer Hebrides. <laughs> Let's be realistic about this. Bromley. Go for Bromley. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll go to Bromley. Yeah, okay. Thanks <laughs> very much for listening. If you've got any ideas or topics you want us to cover, send them to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.